0: Hello and welcome to The X-Ray, I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts. But we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why a penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project
1: of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One.
2: The idea was to create a cloud of suspicion so that even reasonable people might start to ask themselves, well, maybe something was wrong here just because so many people are complaining about the
3: election. There is a pinch point. And if Donald Trump has a particular gift, it's for finding places where there's a gap between what is strictly legal and what's just sort of accepted now. And that pinch point is the certification of votes. People don't have a a very clear idea of how votes are certified, what's ceremonial, what's official in state legislatures and, and U.S. Congress. And the deeper problem is that, and I describe this in the book,
2: is, you know, the modicum of trust that's absolutely necessary in order for democracy to survive. And that is, you have to be willing to trust that the people that you disagree with are also Americans, that they're American citizens, they believe in the system, and they will run a, an honest election the next time out, win
3: or, or lose. How close did Donald Trump come to overthrowing the election? Again, I don't think there really would have been any question you know, as to whether he lost, he did. But how close did we come to a complete upheaval of the political system? I think very close. I think if Mike Pence had acted the way that Trump wanted him to on January 6th, I think we could have descended into something really, truly ugly. For
1: the first time in history, an American
3: president alleged an election
1: had been stolen. And to this day, many Republicans believe that to be the case. The coordinated, presidentially endorsed efforts to quote, stop the steal, were both haphazard and serious. It was election disinformation on steroids. More than 60 courts, multiple audits, the Department of Homeland Security, and former President Trump's attorney general all agree. There was no evidence of significant fraud in the 2020 election. As the dust began to settle, two formidable American journalists set out to ensure a full record was written. Mark Bowden, writer of Black Hawk Down, teamed up with veteran journalist Matthew Teague for The Steal, a new book that offers a week by week, state by state account of the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. I spoke with the authors about their book how to prevent what happened in 2020 from ever happening again, and who the heroes and heroines were that helped stop the efforts to overturn the will of the people. This is episode 37. A conversation with authors Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague. I began my conversation with Mark and Matt by asking them about the inspiration for the project.
2: Well, for me, it came because of my publisher. I have a longtime relationship with my publisher and editor, Morgan Entrican, who owns Grove Atlantic. And he called me, um, I guess, in April... Of last year, and he was concerned that Congress was not going to fully investigate what had happened, and he thought that he wanted somebody to do it, and wanted to know if I I could suggest anybody. And I said, well, you know what, I would be interested uh, in doing it, but given the time frame, because he had said he wanted to do it quickly, I told him that um, he would have to hire a staff of reporters and researchers to help because it couldn't be done as quickly as he wanted, and I certainly couldn't do it by myself. So then we brought on Matt, um, and Matt's job initially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, is he was going to supervise this staff of reporters and researchers. And then he began sending me memos, you know, uh, based on work that was beginning. And as I became more conscious of how big a task it was going to be, and was so impressed with, you know, Matt is such a good writer himself. I just said, why don't we do this together? So we ended up uh, collaborating. And I'm really glad we did because the whole thing went a lot more quickly than uh, and, and better, frankly, than it would have otherwise. So that's how this came about. But the origin of it was to make sure that there was some documentation of what, um,
1: what had gone on. The obvious follow up seemed to be to ask them, how do you summarize what actually had gone on?
3: Well, the the gist of it is that Trump and his sort of close knit team tried to coordinate the theft of an American election. Um, And that's, you know, they were chanting, stop the steal. um, But meanwhile, they were doing their very best to do just that. Um, it wasn't a great or well-organized attempt, but it was a close-run thing in some places. And so Mark and I just set out to sort of document that. You know, we watched January 6th unfold last year, uh, sort of in horror, uh, but we realized that an election, an American election, is not a centralized thing that happens in a, some building in Washington, D.C. that you can run into and overthrow waving a spear and wearing a helmet. Um, it happens in counties and towns uh, in the states across the U.S. And so that's where we set out to, to find the story. It was like, what actually happened in these places among largely unknown bureaucrats uh, who were under enormous pressure um, from the political system?
2: And basically, uh, you know, they proceeded on three fronts. One was this uh, to organize these demonstrations and protests, which were you know, they were the Trump committee, the Trump group was doing everything everything they could to get people out in the streets and to put that kind of pressure. Uh, they were also pressuring election officials to falsify the election results to or to claim that the election results that they had were not accurate, even though there are all sorts of checks and balances in place so that these local officials were were certain that they had a correct count. And then the third front of their effort was political and legal, where they were putting pressure on state legislators, primarily, and election officials to refuse to certify uh, the vote count. Uh, in some states, you know, these, the certification takes place in the legislature. In some states, they have commissions that are set up to do this, but they targeted the, the most likely members, which in m- many cases turned out to be Republicans, uh, because they were the most susceptible to this pressure to uh, refuse to certify the vote. And then, of course, they went to court. They filed 61 separate lawsuits in the six swing states, all of which failed. And if you go through them as we do in the book, it isn't just that they failed. They were The judges just excoriated the lawyers for bringing such frivolous uh, cases into their courtrooms. And in some cases, since we've seen lawyers disciplined for um, just how shoddy uh, that legal work was. But that's what, what was going on. That's an overview of what was happening in the six swing states.
1: I then asked Matthew and Mark a question that I had been asked a week earlier in an interview with The New Yorker. In interviewing people involved in attempting to reverse the election, did it occur to them that there were two groups of people within the movement? Those who actually believed the election was stolen in others who just saw a political path to reversing results they did not like.
3: One sort of handy question to keep in mind as you interview people, uh, I found, was to ask, you know, who's benefiting here? <laughs> and uh, most of the heroes of our book were people who were, to our surprise, we weren't planning on it, they turned out to be Republicans. Um, they believed in Trump, largely, um, but they had the information in hand and they benefited from honesty um, and telling the truth. It was just their natural inclination. Whereas a lot of the people directly around Trump who were orchestrating things benefited from lies. And so uh, that's sort of an easy distinction to make.
2: Yeah, I agree with Matt. I mean, I think that the the more, and I hesitate to use the word sophisticated because it's a relative term, but the more sophisticated people in this Effort. We're we're very cynical. For instance, let's take Rudy Giuliani, who certainly understands the American, you know, election system. You know, his strategy, which I kind of dub in the book the blunderbuss strategy, is just to seize upon every single allegation of fraud, no matter how ludicrous, no matter how obviously disproved, and all of it was equal in his uh, approach because the idea was to just throw up so many allegations of fraud. It didn't really matter if any of them could be proven or any of them could be successfully argued in a court of law. The idea was to create a cloud of suspicion so that even reasonable people might start to ask themselves, well, maybe something was wrong here just because so many people are complaining about the
1: election." For the purposes of understanding how the allegations of a stolen election, devoid of evidence, were so widely believed, I asked them what part of the movement they estimated gained the most momentum.
3: Well, it was made up of so many different pieces. Um, There wasn't really one front um, that that gained momentum. The the legal didn't, the political didn't really. None of the legislatures appointed, you know, uh, false electors. The The Popular Front did, and that was because of the many pieces that they had packed into what Mark calls the blunderbuss. You know, a blunderbuss was sort of in a colonial-era shotgun-type thing that you could stick broken nails and bits of glass and anything into it and and blast it out into the landscape, but it didn't have to be particularly accurate. Um, and so that was what was going on here, was uh, that they they packed all this stuff in, and as Mark said, people sort of believed it. So in the popular front, aided by people who, again, were benefiting Hannity, Tucker Carlson, these guys were making millions and millions of dollars off people's uh, credulousness, really. People believed. Yeah,
2: I I would say I agree with Matt that the blunderbuss strategy worked. Uh, And, you know, it worked in the sense that we see now reflected in polls, where a sizable portion of the electorate still is believing somehow that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, even though there's absolutely no evidence of that. And there would be evidence of it if it had happened. So I think we would have to say that they succeeded in um, convincing many people to be skeptical of the election results.
1: This is the part of the Stop the Steal movement that seemed like a failure of civics education to me. I asked the authors if they agreed with me after their own exhaustive research that due to the uniquely decentralized nature of our elections, it's virtually impossible to rig an American election.
2: Totally agree. It would require such sweeping levels of dishonesty coordinated among, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who don't even know each other. Uh, it, It defies credulity. And the other piece of it that I feel is just not stressed enough is that we have such a clear idea in this country of what the electoral the election map looks like. We know, you know, right down to individual neighborhoods how the vote is likely to come out. The reason that there are six swing states is that there are only six states in the country that are not clearly going to go one way or another where it's still there's still enough of a margin of error. So the idea, you know, that you could introduce hundreds of thousands of fake ballots into an election. And that wouldn't completely skew, you know, the, uh, the election map. I mean, look what happened in, in little Antrim County, Michigan, where what, how many votes, a couple thousand votes got switched,
3: right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There is a pinch point. And if Donald Trump has a particular gift, it's for finding places where there's a gap between what is strictly legal and what's just sort of accepted and known. And that pinch point is the certification of votes. People don't have a, a very clear idea of how votes are certified. What's the ceremonial? What's official in state legislatures and in U.S. Congress? Um, and we see it now. He's encouraging uh, his uh, followers to take these roles in 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 places that where the vote is counted or certified. I think at the last count there's almost two dozen. I think. Uh, uh, Trump-endorsed Biden uh, election deniers who are running for secretaries of state across the country. Um, So there's clearly some shift afoot. But as for the vote itself, casting ballots, uh, I think we can feel confident that uh, it would be almost impossible to uh, defraud that way. We'll be right back.
1: As you know, Swamp Stories is sponsored by Issue One, the leading cross-partisan political reform group in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm excited to tell you that Issue One has just launched its brand new and improved website. It should be your go-to resource for hard-hitting, nonpartisan information about some of the biggest political reform issues of the day. From groundbreaking reports and research to some of the organization's most exciting projects, like our work to protect our elections, the new Issue 1 website is easy to navigate, organized by the topics you care about, and filled with great solutions for how we can fix our broken political system. Check it out at issue1.org. All right, let's get back to it. Mark then took our conversation in a direction a Swamp Stories episode went in early 2021 about the election officials who worked hard to administer a free and fair 2020 election.
2: What I discovered was let's take Maricopa County, Arizona, for example. This is a Republican dominated district with a majority of Republicans on their board of supervisors. They're the ones responsible for running the election. Clint Hickman, who was the president of the board of supervisors, was a Trump supporter and a lifelong Republicans. So in the evening on election day, as he's watching the televised results, when he sees Fox call Arizona for Biden, he's shocked. I mean, this has not happened in Maricopa County for a long time. But he's even more shocked an hour or so later when Donald Trump comes on TV and actually mentions Maricopa County as a place where the election was rigged. Well, Clint ran the election. And so, you know, he... He knew it wasn't rigged, and even though they've been through, you know, to satisfy everybody's curiosity about it at this point, I think they've been through about three or four complete recounts, all of which have shown that the results were accurate. He he, he drew the line, frankly, at lying uh, in order to support his his candidate, you know, and I think that's a line that uh, most Americans would not cross.
1: I shared the story of former Maricopa County recorder, Democrat Adrian Fontes, who was the top election official in Arizona's biggest county where, quote, frauds supposedly took place, but who lost his own election on the same night Trump lost. Fontes' story helps show why the narrative that there was a Democratic conspiracy to rig the election is so ridiculous.
2: You know, I think that there's just something deeper going on here. And that is, you know, people are always disappointed when their candidate loses in an election. And if you had polled Democrats in 2016, you probably would have found a majority claiming there was something wrong with the election because Donald Trump won. Uh, you know, and, and and their criticism basically lined up behind attacking the Electoral College, that, that we should get rid of the Electoral College. You know, that was why Trump won, because he lost the popular vote. So that the change here is that you have a political leader who is encouraging people to believe that the election is fraudulent. And because most people don't understand how we run elections in this country, they're, they're willing to buy that. And, it, and the deeper problem is that, and I describe this in the book, is you know, the modicum of trust that's absolutely necessary in order for democracy to survive. And that is you have to be willing to trust that the people that you disagree with are also Americans. They're American citizens. They believe in the system. And they will run an honest election the next time out, win or or lose. And that's pretty much been true throughout our history, even though there's been very sharp disagreements in politics throughout our history. I don't recall a past election where people just refused to accept. And I think that the reason for that is Trump, but he's playing upon. I think, something really dangerous that's afoot in American politics right now, and that is to demonize someone who doesn't share your political views. And if you do that, it really doesn't matter to the people who are orchestrating this whether Trump really won or not. Uh, They just want to keep him in office. They don't want to give up power.
1: The question i had been waiting to ask them is how close the country came to having a real problem on our hands, given all the experts they interviewed across the country to write the book. I was curious for their perspective.
3: Well, I think there's a a few different parts to that question. One is how close did we come to a fraudulent vote? And I think the answer is nowhere near. I I think the, the system is strong. But how close, you know, how close did Donald Trump come to overthrowing the election? Again, I don't think there really would have been any question, you know, as to whether he lost. He did. But how close did we come to a complete upheaval of the political system? I think very close. I think if Mike Pence had, um, had acted the way that Trump wanted him to on January 6th, uh, I think we could have descended into something really, truly ugly. That's not something that we address in the book, per se, but that seems to be the case. What do you think, Mark?
2: I I agree with you, Matt, and I think Pence uh, really deserves a lot of credit for putting his foot down. Uh, And I do agree that if Pence had decided to step out of his ceremonial role and allow this charade to take place where you would replace actual electors with um, fake ones, and throw things back into the Congress, it, it would have created a tumultuous situation. You know, I also, am, I doubt that it would have worked. I mean, I know when you read Eastman's memo, he says that the Democrats will howl, or he has some aligners saying, well, Democrats will howl about this. Well, They wouldn't just howl about yeah. it. <laughs> they would have torn down the building if if they tried to steal the election out from under them. So I do think we came close to a lot uglier situation. uh, But I don't think we came very close to um, uh, overturning our system or keeping Trump in the White House.
1: In my own research for swamp stories, I've looked aggressively for irregularities at a scale that could have possibly affected the outcome of the election, but have found none. I was curious if Mark found anything that surprised him.
2: Most of it was pretty ridiculous and easy to dismiss. But you know, the one point that I think makes you think is the thing, One thing that was truly different about the 2020 election was the number of mail-in votes. And so the idea of making it easier for people to vote, for people to vote by mail, I don't think in the studies that I've seen indicate that mail-in voting is no more susceptible to fraud than voting in person. And there's no example of it having succeeded. And I've already made the point that if you alter the demographics of the election map, you know, with fake votes, it would be really obvious that you had. But that was a difference in the way that our um, elections are conducted, and so I don't really object to people wanting to take a hard look at whether we should continue to allow universal mail-in voting. I personally would be in favor of it, but I think that there's room there for reasonable people maybe to disagree. But if you tell me, is you know. Greg Stinson did in Pennsylvania, that 100,000 fake ballots were inserted. Or, or, you know, Lenny Stone in in Arizona, who says that, you know, she saw the signature of Satan in the election spreadsheets. I mean, that's just, it's the kind of thing that ordinarily would never even stop anybody for a second.
1: As we began to wrap up, I asked them where we go from here to avoid this ever happening again.
2: I think that the two big things that we have to pay attention to are making sure that the votes are certified, certified as cast. I think that we can shore up that system and make it very clear. And I, and I don't think there's too many Americans other than you know, fanatical Trump supporters who would disagree that the actual vote count ought to determine the victor in an election. And so I think we can shore up that process, which Trump tried to exploit. And the other thing is I think election workers need to be protected. To my knowledge, there hasn't been a serious prosecution of anyone who issued death threats or who stalked or protested on the front lawns of people who are doing their civic duty by volunteering, in most cases, to work on and collect and count. You know these votes. Some of these people were harassed unmercifully, and I think people should be should go to jail for for doing that.
3: And yeah, I think uh, from my point of view, I think. Transparency always helps. It's there should be no murkiness in what is the role of the vice president. What what can Congress do? Can they? You know, there should be total clarity in that. So I think some reforms on that end. I think also it doesn't matter how good you make the process if people are still persuadable of falsehoods. And so I think the more educated people make themselves, the more involved in the process they get. Um, the better off we'll be. be. What we found was that the difference between people who believed that the election was a fraud and were Republicans uh, versus the people who were Republicans and knew that it was uh, an accurate vote was that they were part of the process. They had the accurate information before them, and it made them immune to some degree to the uh, propaganda and uh, lies that were coming out of Washington. Final
1: question. And they'd alluded to the answer throughout the interview. Who are the heroes and heroines of this story?
3: Oh, well, there are several that we highlight in the book. And they range from sort of very public, high-level people like Brad Raffensperger um, in Georgia, Secretary of State, who famously stood up to Trump uh, over an hour-long phone call in which Trump berated him and his staff and demanded that they find the 11,000-plus votes. Uh Raffensperger, it may turn out, will pay for his uh, truth by losing his his uh, seat, uh, his position. Uh, we'll see. Um, but it ranges from someone like that all the way down to sort of people like Cheryl Guy in Michigan, a county clerk who made an error. She's not very tech savvy, as she says. And she made an error, accidentally attributed a couple thousand votes to Biden that should have gone to Trump. One of them was probably her own. She's a Trump supporter and voted for Trump. But she made a mistake and uh, (laughs) within a few hours had had corrected it and came forward to say this was just a mistake on my my behalf. Um, But the Trump campaign and people around him descended on Antrim County, Michigan, in private jets coming in in the night, overturning her office, looking for evidence of wrongdoing and sort of pressuring her to to say that it was actually the machine's. Because if they could say it was Dominion machines that had made a mistake, then it's a widespread problem that they could cast doubt on the election across the entire U.S. But she very bravely and painfully said, no, I made a mistake. It was my screw up. And then all the way on down to sort of the ground level election workers like Ruby Freeman back in Georgia, who for her trouble as someone coming in for little or no money to help open ballot envelopes and things like that, was cast as a villain uh, that she, she was not. Um, it was sort of rocketed around the Internet, uh, her image Nvidia, yeah. and video, uh, and was harassed for that. So these are the people who worked in pursuit of the truth. And I think that's the most heroic thing they could have done. Yeah.
2: They were there in every state. You know, Ron, Ron Bishop in uh, Wisconsin, who was such a Trump supporter that he would put hundreds of Trump signs in his yard so other supporters could come by and take him and put them in their own yards. He ran, you know, workshops for door-to-door campaign workers to go out and knock on doors for Trump. When the election results came in, he told his friends and neighbors, this, there's nothing wrong with the election in Wisconsin. We just reformed it like two or four years ago. Was, you know, it worked the way it's supposed to work, and Trump lost. Dean Knudsen, who was on the Elections Commission, who got up in front of a hostile group, and we write about this in the book, you know, looking for him to endorse the idea that the election was a fraud. He flat out said there was nothing wrong with this election. It was run honestly. Uh, You know, he just stood up when it was hard to stand up. Clint Hickman and Bill Gates in in Arizona. I mean, these guys were under tremendous pressure. They elected a gallows out inside of the statehouse in Arizona calling for their execution. You know, these are Republican members of the Board of Supervisors who knew damn well that the election was run fairly, and, and who's Aaron Vandeveld in uh, Michigan on the election committee who since lost his position because he refused to vote against certifying the, the election count. I think these are profiles in courage. I hope that people will read them a long time from now, and I hope that these people are, are recognized for doing the right thing when it was not easy.
1: On the next episode of Swamp Stories, we're going to do our own profiles and courage and talk to election officials and election workers who stayed the course in 2020 and get their thoughts about the road ahead, including the increasing consensus that election workers deserve statutory protections as we approach the midterm elections. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independence to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at SwampStories.org. I'm your host, Weston Wong. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome, senior producer Evan Ottenfield, producer Sydney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from ParkerPodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.